everyone, Paul here. There's a fantastic episode ahead with Rafe Kelly. I'm telling you, this is, for me, one of the top conversations I've had this year. Uh, I've, I found it so challenging. Incredible. All right. Uh, and we're going to get to that in a moment. I have a quick order of business, a quick request of you. And this is really for those of you, this is your first time listening. Sorry to start with the order of business. But if you've been listening for a while, Deep Talks has been going on for almost six years now. And we're shy of our goal of reaching 200 patrons. As you can tell, many of you who've been following for a while, I've been doing a lot more on the video side. Uh, even doing things like taking segments of conversations and posting them to Reels and YouTube Shorts and hopefully uh, allowing that format to be able to connect with people who might not otherwise have any familiarity with the sort of stuff we've been talking about on this podcast for the last six years. In order to be able to continue to do that and to do that without thrusting upon you advertisements for things you don't need in this podcast, uh, which I will never do. I'm not going to do that. Uh, instead of doing that, what I'm asking of you is to consider supporting on Patreon and help become one of the 200 patrons supporting this podcast to help me reach my initial goal to keep all of this stuff going. So I'm thanking you in advance for considering supporting the podcast, supporting my YouTube channel, supporting the writing I do on my Substack, and uh, can't do it without your support. So thanks for considering that. You'll find a link in the description below, and there's a whole bunch of benefits. I don't want to bore you by telling you about them. There's some really cool stuff that we do, though, with Zoom uh, discussions with myself and people from all over North America. We have bonus episodes, Q&A episodes, a whole bunch of other fun stuff. Again, I want to get to the conversation, but I think this is important in order for conversations like this to keep going and for lecture series like my series on metamodernism continue going. So thanks again. Thanks for considering. You'll find a link in the description below. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for a special thanks to some of the generous supporters who are supporting at the Theology 201 level or higher. All right, with that important business out of the way, let's get into today's conversation with Rafe Kelly. What we should do is just kill our enemies and breed as many women as we can, right? Um, every, everything else has been a psyop, right? Christianity is a psyop of the weak against the strong. People don't actually want to live in that world, I don't think. I don't think they do at all. It, it, they've never, I mean, I don't think they've ever experienced violence, exactly. right? Or, or they're stuck, you know, or maybe then they, or if they have, they've never experienced love. And so they don't have anything else to, to wow. judge it against. But I've experienced both, um, and I'm on the side of love, right? I know what it is to, to have sex, to try to achieve pure hedonic pleasure, right? Even though that was within the context of my monogamous relationship with my wife. And I also know what it's like to approach sex as a sacrament that brings me into greater bonding with another human being that actually acts out our sacred duty to, to to be the heaven and earth for each other, right? And I, I'm much, I'm just, the second is better. It's just better, sorry. Like, I don't know how to say it, but you feel it, you know it when you're in it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I have, I have, I've busted a kid's nose open and his mouth open to show that I was the dominant kid on the playground. And I've played with little kids and done mock combat with people and handicapped myself and played a positive sum game so that everyone can get stronger. And the second is better. 
Welcome everyone to another episode of Deep Talks. I have the pleasure to have on today's episode, Rafe Kelly. Rafe is a new guest. He's never been on before, so this might be an unfamiliar face to some of you, but we'll take time to make sure you get to know a little bit of his story here. But Rafe is the founder of an organization called Evolve, Move, Play, and uh, he's been doing fascinating work on the transformative benefits of what I might call like embodied spiritual formation, like physical fitness, natural movement, mixed martial arts, and uh, what Rafe affectionately refers to as rough and tumble play. And we're going to talk all about that in a little bit. But, uh, you know, Rafe, I'd love to hear just like, th that's a really unique thing to find yourself kind of giving your life's work to. Um, what were the formative experiences in your life that made this feel like something of a, of a calling or a sense of mission? Yeah. Um, I think that I, it was a little bit easier for me to be calling oriented than maybe uh, a lot of people because I grew up in the counterculture. So my dad is a, uh, or was, he passed away this summer. He was a world famous natural builder. And, you know, his attitude towards child rearing was very, um, very open, very permissive. And, you know, there wasn't as much pressure on us to kind of conform to any specific archetype or job or anything. My mom was more education oriented and kept us going with our education, but there's always a lot of freedom. And I ended up home, being homeschooled between fourth and uh, fourth grade in my sophomore year in high school. And then I went into community college right away. So I was always kind of from a very early age charting a somewhat alternative pathway. And uh, as part of my upbringing, um, uh, you know, the reason I was homeschooled because I had ADHD and dyslexia and I was really struggling in school. That was hard on my dad because he had had the same kind of struggles and it had been very traumatizing for him. So he kind of reacted by pulling away from me, which was hard for me, hard on me. Um, it also put a lot of stress on my parents' marriage, which was already stressed. Um, and so that kind of mid-childhood period was very... Uh, very traumatic for me. And I, I acted out by getting in a lot of fights. Um, so my parents put me in martial arts when I was six years old. And then later I had a, a mentor who came into my life who discovered that basically I was just really hungry for rough and tumble play. And that was something that my dad had done with me a lot when I was little, but you know, as I kind of reached seven, eight years old, uh, he really just wasn't available for that. Uh, and so Spanko Paul ended up kind of taking over in that role and I saw how it helped me, you know, and I became, uh, really super learning oriented after being really alienated by the school system. I, I was, you know, reading the lives of the 12 Caesars and the Iliad and the Odyssey in fourth grade, fifth grade, um, started getting into anthropology by the time I was 12 years old, by the time I was 14, I'd read every anthropology book in the local library and, had found a, a mentor through uh, through friends who had his own ethnographic library. And so I read like 30 ethnographies before I started community college at 16. Um, so there was a, an academic trajectory, mm. you know, of curiosity around myth and history and anthropology uh, from a very early age, uh, which was coupled with with experience in the martial arts, with spending, you know, I only did two hours of academic work a day. So I just spent the rest of the time climbing in trees and running through the woods. And there was all these big um, uh, mountain biking tracks that were built on the mountain that I lived on. 
So I used to run down them. I, I didn't actually get into the mountain biking because right around the time that I was sort of dabbling in that, one of my friends uh, crashed his bike and passed away uh, due to complications of a surgery to take his spleen out. So that kind of soured me on on using the bike itself. But I liked running on the on the tracks. Um, and then, and I remember even at you know eleven years old, I had this idea of like, what would it be like to have like a foot race obstacle course in the Olympics? So this was all happening and um, started training gymnastics when I was 15, um, discovered the early UFCs, got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai around that time and kind of was focused on on that uh, on a personal level. And then, um, you know, as I got into um, university and I was studying anthropology and university, I started working in, uh, in gymnastics as a coach to, you know, to kind of just as a job, but I discovered that I liked coaching more than I liked academic anthropology. And so I stopped right before I would have finished my degree and focused on gymnastics. And it was while I was there that I discovered parkour and parkour for me was kind of the, it was sort of like discovering, a, uh, the platonic essence of what gymnastics was trying to be mm -hmm. um and and it really took me into this deep interest in kind of evolutionary origins of how humans moved what it was like for humans to move across different cultures and and how we could sort of move in the way that would best allow us to express our humanity and so i i started experimenting with um what's called méthode naturelle, which was an older French method of physical culture that included most of the elements of parkour, but also uh, self-defense and swimming um, and lifting and carrying and throwing uh, all the way back in 2006. Um, and then, then I ended up, you know, co-founding a parkour gym, going deep into that rabbit hole, but continuing the natural movement project sort of on the side. Um, and then, uh, and then in 2013, I left the, parkour gym focused on the natural movement project and somewhere along the lines there i i discovered that for myself i was i wanted to know how i could continue doing this stuff for life and what what would keep me going and i asked older practitioners in jiu-jitsu and surfing etc like well, you know why do you still do this hmm. and it always came down to how it impacted their character or the meaning that they experienced in their life. And I was like, well, that that's really what I should be oriented towards, right? I could go compete in parkour competitions, but I'm beating my body up, I'm getting injured. It's not really working. Um, what would it mean to train for meaning? And, uh, and so that's, that was the deep dive. And eventually I, that led me to, to Jordan Peterson's work. And he gave me a whole archetypal language to think about meaning and, you know, help. Actually, I'd already run into Yak Pangsep's work and Jean Piaget's work, but just like dabbling on the outserts, and then Peterson just like really takes you deep into it. Um, and through through Peterson, I got got deep into all the all the kind of stuff that you know. Well, I guess the the thing that I discovered with Peterson was JJ Gibson's work, which is huge in the motor learning field. And so I went deep into that and then discovered John Verveke and Verveke's language of meaning has been 
incredibly meaningful to me. And then somehow I became a character in this little corner of the internet. So long story short, here we are. <laughs> yeah. For those that are familiar, that's the, uh, that's probably the affectionate term, um, people give for the kind of community that's surrounded really Paul Vanderclay, uh, his online work, uh, this little Paul corner. and, yeah. and John and yeah. John as well. And John as well. So, you know, and that's, I listening, you know, Paul and, and John, I've seen you on in conversations with them. And <clears throat> one of the things, pardon me, one of the things that really stood out to me, Rafe, is whenever I've heard you talk, um, you know, there's no science to this, but <clears throat> whenever I've heard you talk, I have really gotten this sense of someone that's an earnest sojourner exploring what the truth is. Um, there's, there's something about the way I think these experiences of your life have shaped your character. And there's a couple points of your personal story that, that stand out to me that I've, I've got a couple of follow-up questions. I don't, you know, I don't want to make this too autobiographical. I know you've told your story plenty of times elsewhere, but, uh, I'm, I'm curious about, you mentioned how you noticed that, you know, the parkour training, the mixed martial arts, how you, you noticed it was doing something to your character in a positive way. Was there in your upbringing, um, any particular like religious or philosophical, you know, commitments, you know, your dad, you mentioned your dad was involved in the counterculture movements. Um, was there any sort of like overarching narrative, like a philosophical narrative that you had kind of been exposed to when you were younger that gave you a sense like, oh, I, I'm actually finding that my character is being shaped in a way that I, I can affirm is, is positive. What gave you that sense that like, your character was being changed in some positive sense. Uh, were there any sorts of, you know, religious or philosophical uh, inputs in your life that maybe shaped your imagination around what the good life actually looks like? Yeah. I'll start with the simple part of that story, which was that really the first experience for me of character transformation was, was through the martial arts. So, you know, I was, uh, I was getting in fights at school. I got in uh, a fight when I was, in second grade where I, I actually grabbed a kid's head, uh, after I knocked him down and smacked his face on the concrete, busted his nose and mouth open, which, you know, it's a pretty violent thing for a seven-year-old to do. That's not yeah. normal. No. Um, I was in, I was in detention for six weeks after that. So, you know, things were not so good for me at that stage and I was not such a good person in the world. Um, and I needed something. And so I, I think it's around that time that my mom put me in tank sudo. And, you know, there were two things that were happening through that. One was that I got to fight, right? I got to spar. And so that, that aggravation, that energy, that aggression had a channel now. The other thing was that I got this ethical principle that like, you know, real warriors don't hurt people. Uh, you're not, you're not out there to try and just fight somebody to fight. You're, you're actually trying to cultivate this so that you don't have to fight. Mm. And so I got that. Even I think for my first Tang Sudo teacher, and then my dad started taking me to Aikido as well at some point in in that. Um, so I had, you know, the martial arts were really character transformative to me, and I remember, you know, being like nine years old, and and like people knew that I had this reputation for being a fighter, and we were, I was hanging out in this kind of little redneck town that was even more of a redneck town than the town that I grew up in, and they wanted me to fight this other kid because he had a reputation for being formidable. And I remember like being like, no, I don't do that anymore. Like, I'm not that guy. I'm not the kid who's going to just hurt somebody just to gain some reputation points anymore. It wasn't, 
I didn't have that, that energy in me already. And I, and it, I knew it was because of this martial arts stuff. So that was, that was part of it. And then as far as my parents and the spiritual stuff, both of my parents, I would say were spiritual seekers. My, my dad grew up within the Catholic church and, um, he, he was a choir boy and his family, his extended family is very deeply involved in the Catholic church in, uh, the county where we, where we live. So the local Catholic school is, is run by one of my cousins. Um, and you know, so interestingly, my dad, of course, leaves the church. He doesn't go, you know, and do that stuff. He becomes very, very much, um, sort of new age in his spiritual orientation. He does tons of psychedelics. He travels a lot in India and studies yoga and spends time in ashrams and, um, he goes through different phases. So my older brother's name is Kaira Zeus and my little sister's name is uh, Kumara, which is a Hindu child goddess. My name is actually Michael Raphael Sethru. And that's because my dad was involved in the new age church of Christ around the time that I was born. Mm, interesting. So I was given the name of two archangels yeah. and a new age church of Christ ascended master. Um, so my dad, in some sense, he never lost his love for Christ, right? He, he always revered Christ. He, he would say that Christ was the original hippie <laughs> and he was particularly really deeply attached to St. Francis of Assisi and his exemplar of someone who was, you know, really in tune with the natural world. And so his favorite movie was a movie about St. Francis of Assisi called, uh, father, son, sister, moon, or brother, son, sister, moon. brother, son. Yeah. Um, and you know, we grew up, my, my parents read the, the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita to me when I was a little kid. Um, and we, we experienced elements of new age, uh, or sorry, of, uh, you know, native American, or at least white people trying to pretend to be native American spirituality. <laughs> um, I was involved in something called the Red Cedar Circle in my early teens, which was a, a local religious tradition here. So I, I was I was surrounded by kind of vague attempts at spirituality, but maybe nothing uh, nothing that, f in retrospects, feels very grounded to me. My mom my mom was uh, oriented in a very psychological way, more sort of new age. You know, she was uh, she did the Landmark Forum and she was studied the Enneagram and kind of that kind of self-developmental urge, but expressed through, uh, that stuff. She was also a yoga teacher, spent time at Kripalu. Um, so that, that was my, my kind of spiritual exposure. Yeah. So he certainly landscape. wasn't fundamentalist. <laughs> the opposite. Right. The fundamentalists were, were definitely the enemy, right. As far yeah. as we were concerned, right. Like, uh, that's been a very interesting thing for me as I've encountered Paul and John, Jonathan Pajot and even John Verbeke and Jordan Peterson is the sense that they're, that what I perceived of as sort of Christianity was actually a very weird <laughs> mutant modernist form, right? Yes, very much. Yes. But, <laughs> but growing up Christianity, that was Christianity. Christianity was creationist. Christianity was extremely dogmatic. You know, if it's, if, if you can't justify it based off the Bible, then I don't want to even have the conversation type of, mm -hmm. uh, uh, approach to Christianity. Mm -hmm. 
That's really interesting because that 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 would be the context I inhabited. You know, yeah. Um, my parents, my my parents both. My dad was in a kind of a nominal Catholic family growing up. You know, is uh, Easter and Christmas. Um, no, in fact, actually, you know, yeah, he's got an interesting story. They they attended pretty. I don't think he would mind me telling the story, but they they attended regularly mass uh, until they got to this point where his mother, um, you know, doctors were telling her, Hey, you can't have any more kids. She'd had uh, a difficult childbirth and, uh, said your, your life will be in stake at stake. And, uh, her priest told her, sorry, you know, you can't practice birth control. You can't do this. And that, I think that was a really moment of intense frustration for my grandfather and mother, but my dad, you know, from, I think that point on, they were just kind of nominally, Catholic and his journey, you know, it's interesting that time period that you're talking about. It just seems like we go through these cyclical phases in history because I hear the story of your family's upbringing and it, it sounds so much of like you could just transport so much of that story right now into this present moment with people brushing up against maybe the limits of the secular age and, and longing for transcendence, but being suspicious of traditional religion. I mean, that that was very much the culture that my parents grew up in or in their, I should say their, their early college years. My mom grew up like very devoutly Catholic. Um, and they had their, you know, what they would have called at that time, you know, their born again experience in, mm. uh, in the seventies. And, you know, during that time, there was this interesting overlap and I'm, I'm kind of a product of that Rafe. this interesting overlap between what was happening with the hippie movement, the countercultural movement, which actually then gave way to like the Jesus people movement, yeah. um, Lonnie Frisbee, the hate Ashbury stuff led a lot of those who maybe even might've had like what they would describe as encounters with Christ on psychedelic trips, leading mm -hmm. them into this sort of, uh, Calvary chapel churches. You know, there's this, I haven't seen it. There's this movie, Jesus revolution that kind of tells some of that story, but, um, not that my parents came out of uh, like hippie culture, but that seemed like it was, those were the two options for them. The, yeah. bo both of which were sort of rebelling against the tradition of the past. Um, so like my mom's best friend growing up, she got really into many of the things that sounds like, you know, your, your mom and dad got into my mom went a different route of, uh, she found herself in a very deeply charismatic Pentecostal expression of Christianity, mm -hmm. um, seeing some pretty wild stuff in her college years, like what, many would coin as pretty miraculous uh, experiences that she was really attracted to. And I think that kind of got at the same hunger that her friend had. It was like, you know, just a longing for transcendence to infuse, you know, our materialist story with more meaning than what that story could contain. Um, so, but my experience, Rafe, and I think it's interesting. Uh, uh, this is why I was like, I just got to reach out and talk to you because we come from these different experiences and I'm really fascinated by what you're doing because part of my context. So I'm, I'm like, my parents are first generation evangelicals then, and then I'm born and bred as in many ways, you know, we were in a very unique kind of charismatic church. that had a lot of idiosyncrasies that other evangelicals find very, very strange. But still, we, I was a, a child of the 80s and 90s, like evangelical subculture. Mm -hmm. So all the things you just mentioned, right? Like dogmatic young earth creationism, dogmatic uh, exclusivism. You know, there's 
you know, very, very suspicious of anybody, not even just people in other religions, but people in the other church down the street. You know, that was my experience. And another part of that experience, Rafe, that I've, I've been reflecting on more of was it had this kind of weird um, modern Gnosticism to it where mm -hmm. I I came to understand, and I, this isn't on my parents. Uh, I love my parents. I, I'm just saying in the broader culture, you know, the broader culture of this evangelical subculture, the the overarching story that I had come to believe was this is the point of human existence was that and this is a this is a broad generalization but it was it came to me as the point of life is that you need to get some sort of knowledge of the correct propositions about god mm -hmm. about jesus these doctrinal prop propositions and once you've accepted them to be true and then you made some sort of mental decision that they are true. You then are able to escape when you die this fallen, broken, terrible world. And you go to some disembodied post-mortem retirement resort we call heaven. Yes, it was yeah. very much, we didn't have, uh, you know, what people today uh, that I'm more familiar with today would call like a theology of the body. We didn't have mm -hmm. that. It was very disembodied. I would say like just theologically within the narrative, I didn't really know what the purpose of, you know, those listening or just watching, I'm pinching my skin right now. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know what the purpose of this flesh and blood corporeal reality, the physical world was, um, what the purpose of was it, what, uh, what, what it was. And uh, there was even the kind of like these sayings, very interesting ontological claims that we package down into neat slogans. I remember hearing over and over that you are a spirit that has a soul that lives in a body, mm. when, which is actually, as you just mentioned, as you've gotten more exposed to people like Paul and Jonathan Pajot and others, that's not actually like what ancient Christianity taught. And I became aware of that later. Thankfully, though, like my dad was an athlete. Uh, he was a college football player and kind of like a really... You know, many people might look at him as that kind of like old school Bobby Knight kind of disciplinarian, yeah. which I was really thankful for in hindsight because we didn't have a context of a narrative framework for affirming, um, you know, the discipline of the body and the transformative effects of that. But my dad really instilled that, not just in me. He was the coach, the basketball coach at our Christian school. And like he had all these sayings that kind of countered the, you have, you are a spirit that has a soul yeah. that lives in the bot it lives in a body. You know, these, these like, you know, coachisms, like, you know, pain is weakness, leaving the body, you know, these, these very old school. And I am so, I look back on that Rafe. I'm I might get myself in trouble for saying this among some of my pastor friends, but I look back and I would, I would probably say that, um, playing sports and, and physical contact sports in particular produced more transformation of my character than decades of church attendance did. And I'm wondering, you know, as you find yourself gravitating to giving your life to working with people in this, uh, I, I don't know what kind of, I don't want to assume my language uh, onto your framework, Rafe, but I, I see much of what you're doing as uh, kind of like embodied spiritual formation. You know, it's, it's very much helping people connect this flesh and blood 
to uh, a, a state of deep character transformation. Um, so my story, again, very different from yours, yeah. but I, I'm thankful for my dad. I'm thankful for that experience. And I'm curious for you, Rafe, like, um, you know, hearing any of that, I, I don't want to ask you to speak outside of your domains of competency, your expertise. Like, I don't I, I'm not asking you to make like a Christian theological case for the value of what you're doing, like physical discipline and things like that. But tell me, you know, a bit of what you think, because you've done quite a bit of research and study on this and practice in this, you know, tell me a bit of maybe make a case for my listeners for maybe a scientific case for why the kinds of stuff that like my dad gave his life to what you're giving your life to might produce the kind of character, moral, dare I even say spiritual benefits that many people across all sorts of religious traditions might affirm as positive and celebrate. Yeah. I think that the first place that makes sense to go would actually be to kind of invoke John Ravakey's work, right? John Ravakey offers us this, this breakdown of knowledge into the propositional, um, procedural, perspectival, and participatory. Uh, and s there's something about the modernist perspective, which plays out in both uh, evangelical Christianity and the hippie movement and secular humanism, right? Like all of these end up, I think, in some sense, being uh, deeply influenced by, if not in some sense, subservient to this general tyranny of the propositional, right? I I was sitting with a, a friend of mine who's a, or a contact of mine who's a, um, one of the greatest, he's probably the best parkour athlete of all time, right? And he's a, a very devoted Christian now. And he asked me, you know, are you a Christian? Uh, he said, you are a Christian. I thought, well, I don't know. <laughs> it depends on what you mean, right? Like, do I affirm the Nicene Creed in a propositional sense? I can't really say that I do. Um, do I attempt to live my life in a way that is congruent with the narrative symbol of Christ? I do. Um, so I, I'd like to say that I'm a follower of Christ. Um, and so, you know, I, th I think that at different times, <laughs> The, the 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 salience of the propositional aspect of what it means to be a Christian has been different and for different people, right? Um, you know, there's a distinction in, in, in religious sort of anthropology between orthopraxic religions and ortho uh, orthodox religions. So an orthodox religion, it's, you have to affirm the right propositions. Um, in an orthopraxic religion, it doesn't really matter whether you say you believe something. It matters what you act out and practice. So I'm interested in practice, right? Um, the, so we have, we have the propositional in, in that world. And what we, what is really clear now is that propositional knowledge does not result in character transformation, right? So you can affirm that uh, marriage should be monogamous. And it doesn't mean that you will be successful in avoiding temptation. Mm -hmm. You can affirm that, uh, that parents should meet their, uh, beat their children. And that doesn't mean you'll never hit your kid. I, I believe that something like, um, the average person who says that they're a vegetarian eats meat twice a week. I, I don't know if that's actually true. That's just one of these random statistics that I found on the internet. So take it with a grain of salt, but, but it, I think that it's probably directionally true. Right. The point is that people are actually really bad at living up to our propositions. 
So then we have these underlying layers, right? So a pro uh, you could say that, you know, propositionally, um, I can describe to you how to do a vault in parkour. And you can have a semantic model of how to do that vault that's just as refined as mine. And it doesn't mean that you can do it. So the procedural is the capacity to actually do the thing. Um, and then the perspectival is sort of how the world lays itself out to somebody who is, 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 is acting these things out. And the participatory is the sense of self that's created through being in this. Um, and each of these is actually associated with an independent form of, of, of memory, which we know through the scientific literature. So you have semantic memory, um, the ability to, to re remember facts and figures. And then you have uh, procedural memory, the ability to, to, to act something out. So you could um, you can injure your brain in such a way that you can no longer tell people anything about playing piano, even if you're a, play a piano instructor, and still be able to play piano perfectly well, or vice versa. Um, and then the perspectival knowledge is associated with your episodic memory, the ability to actually remember things that happen. And participatory is the knowledge that allows you to know that you are you, which is a very weird form of memory, but it, you, it can be broken. You can have, you can injure the brain in such a way that like all of your propositions are there, all of your procedural knowledge is there, all of your kind of episodic memory is there, and you can still actually no longer believe that you are you. Mm. You can have this deep alienation from your own self because that part of you no longer works. What I believe is that uh, that religion over time has moved from something that was intrinsically um, acted out and, and, and sort of in many ways completely integrated into a physical culture mm -hmm. to something that has become increasingly propositional. And part of this is a history of religion as, as you know, the religions of the book, the religions of the text, the rise of the printing press, the rise of Protestantism. But if you go back to uh, shamanic practices, shamanic practices are singing and dancing and fasting, right? Taking psychedelics, doing these things, and they're often associated with games, with wrestling, with obstacle course racing, with carrying heavy things, um, with you know, dancing. Um, and this this continues deeply into you know the present. Uh, if you look at people, don't realize this. I mean, we we live in such a strange time in this way of how blind we are to these connections. Yoga is not physical practice primarily that's not what the yoga sutras are about that's not it's a religion it is considered this i think the seventh branch of advaita vedanta which is what most people call hinduism mm -hmm. you get into the asana and there's very few asana in the original yoga sutras you get into the asana in order to cultivate the capacity to do seated meditation which is the central spiritual practice of the yogic tradition in the in the internal martial arts, Tai Chi, Bagua, Jing Yi, are specifically Taoist martial arts. They're deeply intertwined with Taoist practice. So, Taoism, Hinduism, their uh, Vedanta, they're they're deeply associated with specific physical practices. Sufis in Islam, right? Sufis have physical practices, obviously the the call the prayer the five times uh the praying five times in in islam is 
as a physical practice. And then in traditional Catholicism and Orthodox, uh, Orthodoxy, you have the rosary, you have bowing, you have all like, you know, the relics themselves. These are all attempts to, to, to ground the spiritual in something that's actually embodied. And that has been lost. And so I would say there was a credit to my charismatic and Pentecostal tradition in that regard is that mm-hmm. they were looking, not looking for that. I think it was a byproduct of some other appetite for the transcendent. So we very much, you know, especially so I, I grew up in a charismatic church and a lot of people don't know the differences between the, his, I won't get into all of them, the differences between the strains of charismatic third wave charismatic culture. And then what you would say is like, um, Pentecostalism, but I had a mentor that, um, was a, uh, a worship pastor in a Pentecostal church. And we would go over there, the intensity of dancing that would happen mm-hmm. in that context was very, very transformative. Um, yeah. I would come out of these revival meetings and I, I'm not a dancer, Rafe. You can ask my wife, you know, it's going to take a few drinks for me even to get out on a dance floor at a wedding. But this, I would go to this church and uh, by the time I would get out and we're talking about very easily, you could have two hours of, of music happening and I would be drenched in sweat, my calves and my legs hurting more than playing, you know, two basketball games back to back. It was very much embodied. And I look back on that and go, something was happening there in me for sure. And I think the part of the attraction, like my, my mom experience to those kinds of expressions of, of Christianity was not just like the miraculous, but that there wasn't uh, an enforced disconnect between the inner emotional psychological and spiritual dimension, and then what you were allowed and encouraged to do with your body. Um, so I, I do look at that as something of a credit. I'm not in those contexts anymore. And frankly, I, I miss some of that. Yeah. I think, I think that there's, um, it's, it's, I, I actually get a lot of students, uh, who come, I've had a lot of students who had charismatic, uh, Christian upbringings and they are mostly quite traumatized, Yeah, but they find in my work, uh, a resonance with some of the things that were really beautiful. Um, what do you think they find that is most, um, obviously they're coming to you and if they come back to these things, they're experiencing a sense of, of healing and being able to have maybe similar movement or at least similar in the sense that they there's like a lack of restriction physical restriction in those contexts which is really beautiful i know i'm very well acquainted with the hurts attached to them so what is it that you that you see for them in particular because a lot of my listeners rafe come from Mm -hmm. those contexts too as well so that might be interesting for you to just make it out Um, you know what do you observe you know we're not saying it's established fact here. I mean, I think part of it is just that there's a, that it's a, that it's, that you're doing something very physical that has an attachment to a philosophical and wisdom orientation. Mm -hmm. Um, In particular, song is powerful. I'm not a great song leader myself, but we, we've had, so in fact, in 2016, 
um, was the first year. So we, we started Return of the Source in um, 2013. And then in 2016, we had uh, three students who, who basically brought music. One came from Capoeira, and he's kind of like, I think, raised in the counterculture like I was. Uh, another take came from Capoeira as well, but he'd been raised in a charismatic uh, Christian sect. And then I think the other one had also been raised in some kind of Christian context um, with music. <clears throat> and so on the third day of that event, which was a five-day event, I, uh, I had to leave site because I had Lyme disease and I was violently ill. And during the night that I was gone, this group of people played music together and shared all this music. And when I got back, I could see that it had this really incredible transformative effect. And so after that, we've always tried to continue that. Um, <clears throat> Paul, the man who, who, who was kind of the biggest leader of that, he actually wrote a song about his experience at Return to Source and shared it with us. And it became a kind of anthem that we would share at the events. And then we had a lot of people who come to us from the Wilderness Awareness School tradition, and they bring a bunch of songs. They bring songs for gratitude for food, for the natural world, for, for all these things. And so that, that, that song context is really powerful. And so some of our students who come from that evangelical charismatic background, it's you know, one of one of the women I think said it was the first time that she'd sung with a man since um, since she left the church. Mm -hmm. Where else would that happen in our culture? And, yeah, and so it was really really powerful for her. Um, and then you know, and then a big part of the healing is that we hold a space that's very uh, um, very sexually responsible. That's right. One of the questions that I ask of every person who comes to our event is to agree to not start a new sexual relationship at the event. So we're not, you know, we're, we're not particularly advocating a specific set of sexual ethics. Um, and we're not trying to tell people that, that their sexualities are bad or wrong in any way, but we're just saying that there's a context in which you can create transformation in which it is, uh, in which it is easy to fall in love in which we need a, uh, we just need a strong commitment to not let that uh, consummate itself. It's so funny and, that you mentioned that, Rafe. I'm, ha I'm having flashbacks to like all the youth pastor advice, which seemed really funny at the time, but I kind of get it now that which is like, yeah. hey, you shouldn't go praying alone with a girl somewhere. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. You know, and I, you know, you were like, well, if I'm really talking to God, wouldn't it <laughs> just, so hearing that I go, oh yeah, yep. There's, there's something to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that sexual responsibility is the hardest part of effective community development. <laughs> like having grown up in the in the counterculture, it it's and especially when like th this is one of the things that started to happen for me. Right, is that I I. I, I, I took people out into the woods to do parkour with me in the woods and martial arts because I like to do those things and I like to do them in the woods and I just wanted people who could play with me more or less. And then they told me that it was a spiritual experience and it was transformative and it was life-changing and they wanted to come back and do it again. And I was like, Oh, cool. Like, <laughs> um, I don't, you know, like I didn't know how to handle that at first. Yeah. And then at a certain point, like, some of the students from the wilderness school, they started like wanting to add these rituals to the event. And so we have rituals. On. You know, we have people jump over a fire into a pond after walking through the woods blindfolded. 
and and there's fire and music and mm-hmm. everything and you're like you know if you want to start a cult like this is this is powerful stuff <laughs> you weren't you didn't go out to set out uh, to make yourself a guru you just wanted to yeah you know, I, didn't, share. I didn't i didn't yeah I, I, yeah i just wanted to share and in fact i'm very afraid of becoming a guru because yeah. You know, I saw so many of these charismatic men take sexual advantage of young women in the, the the childhood that I experienced. And, you know, when my mom, you know, my dad was sexually irresponsible, you know, he, he, he broke his marital uh, vows with a young woman when I was I think, 13. And during <clears throat> my mom's, uh, you know, and him's trying to repair their relationship. My mom was very uh, was spending a lot of time going to Kripalu for yoga teacher trainings, and she was really, really um, compelled by the teachings of this teacher, Amrit Desai, who was the guru of Kripalu at the time. And Amrit Desai spoke a great deal about the importance of monogamous marriage. So fast forward a couple of years into this experience, and it turns out that Amrit Desai had something like 23 women who were sheltered around the country, hidden out in little halfway houses because they were his lovers, and he was hiding it from the world, mm-hmm. right? My my little sister went on to teach yoga and be involved in the yoga community. Uh, one of her friends was the girl who blew the whistle on Bikram and what he was doing. Um, yeah. So, like, I, I, I'd been around that stuff a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it. The, the parkour community, I would say, has been more responsible because there's a kind of anti-authoritarian ethic to the parkour community. So the men who sit at the top of the hierarchy of parkour skill, they tend to sleep with a lot of women who are students, but it it doesn't become as damaging because there's less of a spiritual authority yeah. that's accorded to them, yeah. less of an expectation that they are actually exemplars of spiritual excellence Mm -hmm. so the hypocrisy is not as Mm -hmm. obvious right a lot of them are very you know sort of openly polyamorous right it's still i'm not a fan of it (laughs) um you know that was another experience that i've gone through was um being in meetings with everyone at the the parkour gym that i had founded and realizing that with the exception of me and the other married guy everybody was one degree of sleeping from everybody else in the room (laughs) Hmm. like and and i just felt like that i think in some ways that those kids who came through parkour they were actually remarkably responsible about navigating those difficult relationships but it was like this guys this is drama we don't need it like can you just (laughs) yeah can you just not do that can you just (laughs) hold back a little bit Okay, but that's a really good question, though, Rafe, because I, I like I want to pick on that for a moment because, like, I, I've sometimes wrestled with, uh, you know, my my day job is as a pastor, and I'm I'm also, uh, you know, I, I I've long left the the young Earth creationist story, and I'm very scientifically literate. I'm not a scientist, but I I, I, yeah. I try to be scientifically literate. And for me, one of the conundrums, and I'm I'm curious because as you're mentioning this, I'm thinking about well, how are you handling in your context? I feel oftentimes that like there's this tension here. Um, theologically, people might call it like original sin. You know, Calvinists might call it total depravity. That there seems to be, uh, let's say, from an evolutionary sense, there seems to be uh, the hardware that we get 
through evolution. And I oftentimes feel like what, uh, what religious spiritual formation is doing is like trying to install a new operating system onto this hardware, but this hardware has certain proclivities to it. You know, for example, you've got men that are successful in any level of leadership and there's a good chance. It's not always the case. There's a good chance that they've, they've got functioning levels of testosterone, which means they, uh, they're going to want to not be monogamous. Like that might be the hardware facet of it. You know, like we're not evolutionary. We've got, we've got millions of swimmers for a reason, you know, (laughs) we're not hardwired for monogamy. And yet something about, I'll speak from my own tradition, we would say like the way of Jesus calls us to committed monogamous relationship. And there's something about living in that way that actually speaks to like this bigger cosmic reality. And this, this is what Paul would talk about is like the mystery of Christ's love towards his people, towards the church. And so we're supposed to enact that in our commitments and our monogamy, but it's, it's difficult. And so the sorts of stories that you're talking about, it's very easy for people that have come from my context and have seen grievous sexual abuse to think, well, I I'm, I'm going to find some alternative spiritual community. And I, I appreciate your openness and sharing. Cause I think what a lot of people don't realize is you go to those communities and you're going to experience similar, if not worse things there. And it seems like there's this tension of like, okay, well, that seems to be like, you know, that seems to be in the the hardware of the human species, especially males, sexual promiscuity. Um, How do you actually say like, what sorts of things are you doing? Do you actually see like the practices that you are engaging and helping other people engage with as doing some sort of like installation of new operating system? Do you feel like you're installing just apps on the system (laughs) there? Are you totally uncomfortable with this uh, hardware software metaphor altogether? I'm I'm quite fascinated by this. It's actually kind of an area that I'm I'm writing about right now Um, because I, I think that what's happening in our culture is a breakdown of any aspirational model of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. And this is really at the center of the culture war. It's at the center of the dysfunction. It's at the center of the breakdown of the family. And that we have to, we have to articulate it and it has to be articulated. I've been playing about with this idea of evidence-based myth, Hmm. right? So myth of course is, is, uh, is on one level, the way it's used in our culture is a false narrative, right? A set of superstitions. Um, but I don't think that's the right way to think about it, right? The right way to think about it is myth is a narrative container for eternal truths, right? That you, that, that uh, this is something I actually discovered through being a movement teacher, right? So I went and studied all the scientific research and I can tell you that you should do this practice and not that practice. If you have this goal, because of this study and this study and this study, and I can tell students that and watch their eyes glaze over Most people don't experience the world in such a way that that is easy to absorb. But if I tell them a story about my own personal experience, their eyes light up. Like you can see their eyes almost water when you connect to emotion and you know that it, that it's more powerful. Uh, I've, I've actually been, this has been a realization that I've been working on in my own marriage recently, which is that, uh, 
my wife and I have a, a, a pattern of a history where she'll say like, hey, this behavior of yours is hurtful to me. It's not working for me. I need you to change. And I'll be like, okay, that makes sense. That's that's logically coherent. I accept your propositions. <laughs> I will attempt to do what you're asking of me. Yeah. And then I will fail. <laughs> right? And she'll be really frustrated because she'll say like, hey, I shared this with you. You've said that you're going to try to do it. And I'll be like, well, I am trying. I got a little bit better and then I regress. But hey, I'm now I'm, you know, like I'm I'm halfway there. I'm glad it's not just you, Rafe. <laughs> <laughs> and and then in in some of them are, in the last year of our partnership, really, I've had this realization that I cannot change unless I can feel her pain. So accepting her propositions doesn't mean anything if I cannot embody her perspective within me. Wow. So so then to me, a myth is something that embodies those perspectival wisdom in a narrative form that we can carry forward. Um, and and we, we don't have myths that tell us real truths about how to become a good man or how to become a good woman anymore. Or if we do there, there's a, there's a tension between the myth, right? Let's say that the, that there's a, a mythos within Christianity that orients us towards monogamy. And if we take on a scientific worldview, it seems to be in conflict. Scientific people will tell us that, uh, that monogamy is not natural. And they're not wrong, at least they're not, um, they're pointing at something true, mm -hmm. right? Which is that we, we that we are also, uh, set up with desire for non-monogamous behavior, right? Human beings from a, like a broad perspective, evolution or anthropologically, cross-culturally are a pair bonded species. That engages in serial monogamy we don't tend to stay with the same person for our entire life across most cultures that has a fairly high level of extra pair copulations right mm -hmm. you know about 50 percent of the time within any sort of tribe about 50 percent of the people are cheating on their partner at any given time um we use violence quite a bit to try to forward our sexual agenda men engage in mate guarding and beat their partners in order to keep them from sleeping with other men. They, uh, they, uh, women use manipulation and whatever tools at their disposal to try to forward their own agenda. It's not, you know, the evolutionary picture is not, is not moral and it's not actually good. I don't think. And so you can look at that and you can say, Hey, you know, if Dar if Darwinism is the ultra outer frame, um, maybe then you should go to a sperm bank and see how many lie about yourself and try to get yourself in as many bellies as possible, right? If you're a man, <laughs> you know, harvest your eggs and sell them. If you're a woman, whatever it is, uh, I'm a very, I love evolutionary biology. You know, I, I think through the lens of evolution all the time, but I didn't find that personally satisfying. In fact, I know that it was, that it was that that lenses that came out of thinking about love and romance from a evolutionary or economic perspective did not help me be a better husband. Mm -hmm. So there's another perspective, which is monogamy 
is the highest expression of an inherent natural capacity. It's something to aspire to. It's not easy. You're not set up to have it just fall into your lap. But you, 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 as a human, you do fall in love. And the best expression of that between two people and the children that they can bring into the world is when they can find a way to continually do that with each other for the rest of their lives. And, uh, yeah, and th that, that gets me to the sort of these ontological questions of, of, of Christ's example and how we understand that narratively and all, all that. But, um, but even affirming that Rafe gives us a point of like, we could call it like religious pluralism, a religious, a religious dialogue. When you have people that have that shared commitment, that there is a, if there, if you can call it this, there's a, there's a grain and a going against the grain for the intended order of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. Affirming that's a huge step, right? Because part of the thing I think we're culturally wrestling with is, um, and I'm not like a postmodern boogeyman kind of guy, but there, there has been the impulse as a result of postmodernism to see all overarching stories as masking a play for power, which kind of disincentivizes collaborative discussion like what we're having, or I might sit down yeah. with John and Verveke and we won't have the same, you know, necessarily the same theological viewpoint, but there's this shared, and that's what I meant when I was trying to offer an encouragement at the top of the conversation here is when I hear you talk, I hear someone that's hunting for the truth in a way that affirms there, there is a way, right? Like, you know, as a Christian, the early Christians called it the way of Jesus, you know, Taoism, Dao, the Tao is the way there's like all of these traditions. And I'm not saying I'm not doing the perennialist move and saying they're all saying the same thing about what going with the grain of the intended order for the cosmos is. I'm not yeah. doing that move, but just to take a moment to affirm what is not universally affirmed in our cultures to say, well, there is an intended grain and like, let's work really hard collaboratively to figure what that might look like. You know, what's it going to look like in human sexuality? What's it going to look like in the raising of our children, in how we build institutions, in the sorts of parameters that you would say, these are the sorts of parameters I want to have when I host an event and I invite people here that I'm going to say coming out of it, if you go outside of these parameters, you're, you're moving away from the intended good that I have, that I see is not in keeping with the intended good. And um, you have to do that. All communities do that, um, mm -hmm. whether they do it thoughtfully or not. So uh, this is fascinating, Rafe, that when we, you do so much right now with, so much of your work is centered around physical touch, you know, yeah. in a context where initially when I heard your story and uh, you, you share about a mentor that stepped into your life, you know, a, a not biological relative that's entered into your life and encouraged rough and tumble play in our particular cultural moment, my, even my own proclivities, seeing terrible things happen in the church is to go, Oh boy, I would be instantly suspicious of what I might say are 
kinds of behaviors, like whether they be sexual in nature or violent in nature that takes advantage of children. So you're doing something that is, you know, still capturing that countercultural ethos of, of your, your, your parents to say, no, 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 there, there's something valuable here that we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, trying to discover what proper physical touch looks like. What does that, what are these sorts of practices look like that we can continue to cultivate, which would orient us towards the good. But I just don't think we can get there at all without affirming, yeah, there's like a good that we should be oriented to. I agree. I agree. And um, I don't know if you saw Jonathan Peugeot's talk at ARC. Mm -hmm. Have you watched yeah. that video? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought that was the best talk at ARC, and I thought that it was the best that Jonathan Peugeot has ever been. And I think that he, I agree with you that I think perennialism is somewhat naive, right? I don't actually think that all spiritual traditions actually teach the same truth. And it, it might be pointing. It might be the most truth. colonial, you know, when people are yeah, concerned yeah. about the colonialism <laughs> of religion, that might be the one if we re erase all yeah. distinction among cultures and say, you know, we're all saying the same thing. That sounds really good when you're, you are the group in power, <laughs> but when you're the group that's not in power and you're saying, Hey, we actually have these distinctions here about our particular traditions that we don't want eroded then. And I also just think that it's fundamentally untrue, right? Like, you know, uh, I, I consider myself a follower of Christ because I think his exam, that, that what is contained in his story is actually, um, the way of being that best allows us to move towards the kingdom of heaven, not in some metaphysical sense, right? Well, it could be in metaphysical sense. I have no commitments there, mm -hmm. but literally in just like living in a better world, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that if we, if we are able to extend agopic love, even to our enemies, that that's what redeems the world, mm -hmm. right? It, it redeems the world day to day. It redeems the world today and making tomorrow a better world, right? Totally. Even that's, if you just see it as the that, pattern that would be the best to follow in a group selection mindset. Mm -hmm. What yeah, helps exactly. one group outcompete the other for for fit fittedness and not fittedness yeah. as in just like we're the domineering alpha males, you know, because that, that's actually not what helps somebody continue to survive and continue to allow their species or their group to flourish. There's, there's altruistic behavior, there's cooperation, there's all of these necessary steps as well that actually contribute to the group's flourishing. But what you're saying was good. Um, so <laughs> you were talking about the way, of, the way of Jesus yeah. being, yeah. maybe. Well, so I, you know, so I, 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 I like ran through this sort of, I don't know syllogistic logic or something like, okay, I, I, I am a Christian because I want to do these things, right. Or I believe in these things. And if I was to, to, to try to understand the central narrative, the central claims of Islam, I don't have the same sense that this is right. Right. Um, there's a, there's a lot of central claims in Islam that I think are actually morally pernicious. <laughs> idea that you should lie to the unbelievers <laughs> um 
jihad, right? Um, I don't want to get too much into that conflict. Obviously, it's a very hot one right now. But I don't think that they're the same. I think obviously a lot of the spiritual truths of Christianity and Judaism are there in Islam because it's the, they're the precedents of Islam, right? Uh, but the total structure doesn't necessarily indicate the same direction. No, and I hope a Muslim would tell me, hey, Paul, I think you're wrong about this, this, and this too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Buddhism is essentially a renunciation religion, right? It says that the ultimate goal is to not be embodied in the world. And that's very much not my direction, right? So I don't think that they're the same. I think I think that there is what, you know, what, what Paul or what John talked about there, that Jonathan talked about there, the, the idea of the ineffable good that's beyond our capacity to express. There's some pointing to that in all of these traditions. And that is fundamentally incredibly important. Um, but to, to respond to your, your point about group selection, uh, this is, I think, where the science and the spirituality start to meet in an interesting place. Because standard evolutionary theory is non-teleological, right? It says there's no end to evolution. And evolution clearly produces all sorts of terrible horrors, right? I was just reading about um, about hyenas and their uh, their system of sexuality. Hyenas are the only mammal females that don't have vaginal openings. They have pseudo penises that have to be inverted to to reproduce, and then they have to give birth through them. And that birth giving process kills sixty percent of the pups and twenty percent of the females. Evolution did did hyenas dirty, um, but but there is this general trend across evolutionary time of increased complexity through the um, replacement of zero sum games with positive sum games. Right, we have mitochondria in our cell because mitochondria were at some point a separate organism that chose to subsume itself within another type of cell and become an engine for that cell. So it, it was that they found that they worked better together than apart. And multicellular organisms are the same principle, right? And social systems are the same principle. So over and over and over again, it's proven incredibly, uh, advantageous to be able to play a positive sum game at a higher order level. Something like a, uh, like a, a transcendent spiritual religion can be seen in an evolutionary game theory context as a way of creating positive sum dynamics at a, you know, what's the term? Multi-ethnic level. Mm -hmm. Right. You can have these multi-ethnic face that like Christendom was riven with wars all the time. Mm -hmm. And yet it would unite to some degree. It's hard because history is so bloody and so terrible that it's very easy to look at anybody and say, hey, you were the worst people of all time. <laughs> right? right? The British, the worst. The Germans, the worst. Yep, the French, right. the worst. Belgians, oh my God. Mm. Um, but we're all, we tend to be making those comparisons against a kind of ideal For rather sure. than a reality. So was Christendom what Christendom aspired to be? Absolutely not. Right. This is Tom Holland's point, right? Tom Holland's yeah. argument in Dominion. 
Yeah. So that we're, we're, we're measuring the, the, even the shortcomings of you know, the crusades were terrible. Yeah. Up against yeah. what? Oh yeah. Well, the teachings yeah. of Jesus, <laughs> you know, you're like, yeah. Oh, great. So it's so funny that the crusades get so much. Right. I'm going to the caricature. So much, it's much more complex than that, but. Well, well, I just think it's funny because people forget what preceded the crusades. Like why was there a crusades? Right. The Arab expansion. Right. Right. Like, yeah, that all, that whole region was colonized before the crusades. Yes. Um, but, and before that it was the Byzantine empire, which is another, you know, the Roman empire, which is another colonial project or, you know, uh, imperial project. But before I read, uh, dominion, well, this is kind of interesting. My daughter right now, you know, she, here in Bellingham, Washington, we have a extremely woke school district. Right. And so, you know, I've asked my daughter who's in fifth grade, does she know who Thomas Jefferson is? She doesn't. Does she know what the constitution is and how it was formed? She doesn't. Right. Does she know what the declaration of independence was and how that came to be? No, she doesn't. Right. Does she know who signed the emancipation proclamation? She doesn't. Right. She knows nothing about American history except for the history of civil rights told from a left-wing lens. Right. So she knows about Martin Luther King and Ruby Bridges and all these people. Um, and right now, the particular focus of this school system is a lot on uh, indigenous Americans, which in a way is good and it's mm -hmm. corrective, right? But she's basically telling me that the message she's getting is white people do bad things and Native Americans are the victims. And she'll, she'll be like, I, she can see the hypocrisy. They'll the books that they're reading will talk about something that, you know, white Americans did to native Americans and they will, they will, they will focus intensely on the moral failing involved. And then they will mention in passing a great military victory that the native Americans have, and they won't talk at all about all the white people who got killed. Right. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 it's the inversion of the traditional imperial narrative, right? And the traditional imperial narrative, when you kill us, it's atrocity. When we kill you, it's glorious victory. Yes. Now she's getting the exact opposite. When we kill you, it's atrocity. When you kill us, it's glorious victory, mm -hmm. which is absurd. Mm -hmm. But I, I've been telling her about, um, about my experience of reading Native American history. And recently, uh, just a few years ago, I listened to Joe Rogan podcast and he had... Um, the author of the empire of the summer moon on his podcast. So I went and read that book. So really it's very easy to read, very compelling, uh, history book. Right. Um, and he, he talks about the history of the Comanche and it's clear that he admires the Comanche in their freedom and in many ways, but it becomes very clear that the Comanche were incredibly brutal. And they had zero moral compunction about doing the most heinous things imaginable, mm -hmm. scalping and gang raping, you know, uh, European women. Um, and then on the flip side, uh, white European, you know, settlers uh, did some pretty terrible things to the Comanche. They massacred them. But when they did, they would go home and there would be newspapers that wrote editorials about how they had failed. Mm -hmm. They would face public opprobrium for for the sacrifice, uh, for those, those, those massacres, the, 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 the Comanche war chieftains who were, who were terrorizing the, the, uh, you know, the, the Spanish for 200 years, were not going home 
and being told, you know, you failed to live up to our spiritual traditions. You failed to be a moral person. They were being celebrated. Mm-hmm. And so that was a quite interesting thing. And then I read, uh, I read that followed right up by a book called the trail of tears, which is about the Cherokee experience. And it was a very interesting kind of follow-up because There's a clear moral asymmetry between the, the behavior of the Americans and the behavior of the Comanche. Uh, the, the Americans are just morally better people, basically. Certainly not moral exemplars, but you know it's the direct it's directionally correct. Now, in the case of the Cherokee, it's not like that, right? What we did to the Cherokee was was deeply um, wrong, right? Like they. They became Christian. They tried to live up to our standards. They educated themselves. They integrated themselves into our, our society. Um, they worked really hard, uh, and the Choctaw and the Chickasaw as well, but particularly the, the Cherokee. And basically, Andrew Jackson, who who had you know the leaders of the Cherokee fighting for him, <laughs> said, "I don't care." It doesn't matter. There's no, there's nothing you can do that will prove to me that you are sufficiently integrated in our society that I'm not going to just kick you out and send you to Oklahoma. And so this was an example where, where the moral, uh, from my perspective, the moral weight was really in the opposite direction, right? The Indians had been the more moral, more virtuous society in that interaction. But what was interesting about that was that um, there had been, Christian missionaries who'd gone in and helped the Cherokee integrate. And they'd picked up some of these moral teachings from those Christian missionaries. And those Christian missionaries fought really hard to try to prevent the actions of Andrew Jackson and his mm-hmm. administration. There was a lot of public pressure from Christian abolitionists to treat the Native Americans fairly. And I'm trying to imagine, you know, that in reverse or that across most societies. Can you imagine if there was, if Genghis Khan had to go home and, you know, have, you know, 50 different people petitioning him not to conquer the Russians Yeah. or, you know, if Julius Caesar came back from Gaul and everyone was like, you know, I can't believe how badly you treated the Gauls. Um, that, that is different. Right. And then the last one was, uh, was a book on the Lakota, which just lays out how the Lakota were an imperial force that was who was actively expansionary across, um, and and were were. It's a fascinating history because they went and, and got um, they went and actively solicited the French to sell guns to them so that they could win their wars, mm-hmm. and then they got control of the horse supplies, and then they went out and conquered regions in order to control the buffalo herds. And so they massively expanded throughout the uh, 18th and 19th century through pursuing an imperial policy. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us though, Rafe. Like this gets to what I'm, I'm, I'm kind of picking at is like, yeah, that's, that's in the hardware. Those are like hardware features. And so the, this like kind of inverted aristocracy thing that we're trying to do in our culture, which to me seems like we're, we're trying to move away from what I think was like the modernist value of meritocracy you know, which was a reaction against the aristocracy that you're born into a particular class that gives you status is to say, no, you can actually achieve your status through 
virtue, through hard work, right? That's that's what I picture as like the best of the American way, right? It's the thing we celebrate when we watch the Rocky movies and Star Wars and everything else. Yeah. But the the new movement, I think I, I've called it like it's 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 like an inverted aristocracy, right? So people are given their status and their place based on where they are born, but it's inverting that, you know, that that structure from those who traditionally we would say have the power to those that we would say mm-hmm. with various like means and measurements that don't always seem consistent for for measuring who is the most disenfranchised. I, I get that. When you actually get into the like the real history, you start to see we can we can go all the way back to Neanderthals with this stuff. We can go back before that to mm-hmm. chimpanzees. This seems to be the sex and the violence it seems to be in the hardware. And so what is going to afford us, like, first of all, why would we even question that, right? You can kind of have this, like, and I see this emerging on in, in the internet culture, Rafe, maybe you've seen it too. Yeah. They're like these kind of like, Bronze let's return, forward. let's return to our pagan gods. You know, Zeus is strong, Christ is weak, Odin is strong, Christ is weak sort of mantra. And I'm like, all right. You really want to go back to that world, but there's a recognition that um, if you were like the way of Zeus and the way of Odin maps on much more simply to our hardware, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like maybe if I'm doing do a little like, uh, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking of anthropology that like maybe even that's a projection of our, our hardware is to say, mm-hmm. here's Zeus, here's Odin, here's like what we have to embody. I was listening. I don't know. You, li- you ever listen to Hardcore History with Dan Carlin, that podcast? Yeah, yeah. You know, so he just bit. got done with this Twilight of the Asir, kind of discussing mm-hmm. the the, yeah. the kind of the end of the Viking Age and the Christianization of Rome. But he had this really interesting point. He's like, if you really want to get to know a civilization and culture, look at their religion's gods and look at who gets the good seats in the hereafter. And that mm-hmm. will tell you all you need to know about what that culture will be like. And I think it was a really astute observation, you know? So if your God is Odin, Zeus, if those who get the good seats in the hereafter are the warrior class, um, the brave, those that maybe maximize the Ubermensch, <laughs> those that maximize their hardware to, I'm not, I'm not making it totally villainous because those peoples are all driven by the preservation. Like these guys, these warriors going out want to protect their wife and kids, just like, you know, any warriors in the American empire want to protect their wife and their kids and their civilization. But there also is like, all right, there has to be like, there has to be something. And I think you've identified it as like this mythic structure that oh, that's over the top. That like a transcendent story that calls us up higher, gives us like a teleological aim that orients us. And the really weird thing to me, Rafe, is like our culture is so teleological. Like you know, the, the progressive movement is a movement that suspects that any movement away from the past is a movement in the right direction, and, yeah. and it's it's eschatological. You know, which would mean like the theology of how the trajectory of the story will inevitably end. It has an eschatological component. It's just like unspoken underneath the surface. And uh, I just think like we, we got to identify in name that we are actually making like teleological 
eschatological claims. We're making mythic claims. You know, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis argued yeah, no. yeah. that in some regard, like the naturalist story is a pretty epic myth, you know, like a universe yeah, comes that, to yeah. be and then it burns out and then we all die in the end. It's, it's quite the tragedy. It's a pretty compelling <laughs> tragedy. Yeah. That idea of the evidence-based myth. I'm writing something right now about the, the evolution of rust housing, but treating it as if it was a, was a myth, mm-hmm. right? Like the first animals that had a problem, how do you solve who gets the good spots? Yes. Right. Yes. And they, they, they had, they had weapons and if they'd use their weapons then everyone gets too injured and then it's no good for anybody. So you learned how to fight without weapons. That's the origin of, of wrestling. So you said it's in the hardware. That, this this Bronze Age pervert sort of perspective, right? Like, what we should do is just kill our enemies and breed as many women as we can, right? Um, every everything else has been a psyop, right? Christianity is a psyop of the weak against the strong. People don't actually want to live in that world. I don't think. I don't think they do at all. No, it's in right. it's infantesa, it's infantile fantasies. It's juvenile. It, it, it's peculiar. they've never. I mean, I don't think they've ever experienced violence, exactly. right? Or or they're stuck, you know. Or maybe then they, or if they have, they've never experienced love, and so they don't have anything else to to wow. judge it against. Hmm. But I've experienced both, um, and I'm on the side of love, right? Right. I'm. I'm. I know. I know what it is to to have sex to try to achieve pure hedonic pleasure, right? Even though that was within the context of my monogamous relationship with my wife. And I also know what it's like to approach sex as a sacrament that brings me into greater bonding with another human being that actually acts out our sacred duty to, to, to be the heaven and earth for each other, right? And I, I much, I'm just, the second is better. It's just better. Sorry. <laughs> like, I don't know how to say it, but you feel it, you know it when you're in it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I have, I have, I've busted a kid's nose open and his mouth open to show that I was the dominant kid on the playground. And I've played with little kids and done mock combat with people and handicapped myself and played a positive sum game so that everyone can get stronger. And the second is better. Hmm. Um, you, we can, we can, we can seek out our hedonic desires and we can use whatever violence that we have. And it is less good than having true deep connection and positive sum interactions with other people. Um, I don't, I don't think that the people who say that they want that actually want that for the most part. I think what they see is that it's happening and they feel like it happened within Christianity. So therefore Christianity can't be the answer to it. And so the only answer that they can see is if the world is going to become a zero sum game, I want my group to win. Yes. If it's going to be men versus women, if I'm a man, I want men to win. If it's going to be white versus black, if I'm white, I want white to win. If it's going to be Christian versus Arab versus Muslim, I want Christian 
to win. Or I want Christians to stop being Christians and worship Odin just so they can fight the uh, the Muslims, right? Um, but I think all of that is actually, in some sense, a misplaced love for the Christian civilization that they inherited. Wow. Hmm. They they don't they feel like it failed them, and therefore it's not fit for purpose. But the thing that they want to replace it with is exactly the same uh, the thing they're trying to resist. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't I don't know like. I've been thinking a lot about ARC, right? I was at ARC and I saw the dogmatic, charismatic Christianity of my childhood there. How would you describe ARC for those that aren't familiar with it? It's not something uh, I really explored in my Association of Responsible Citizenship. Mm -hmm. It was the group, a group of people who came together around Peterson because they felt that he was pointing out some, some fundamental problems that essentially Western civilization faces. And that within his work, there was the beginning of a better story. And so that's a better story. I, I'm not sure if it's actually coherent yet. Mm -hmm. I think in some sense, it is probably too reflective of Jordan's individual personality. So it's about free market capitalism and the recovery of, of Christian myth and, um, you know, pro pro-energy environmental policy um, and recovering the social fabric, because I think those are things that Jordan Peterson features a lot on his channel. Like that's, that's as far as I can tell what, what really brought those themes out. Um, Like I would have loved, I've said this before, I'll continue to say it. I think that for what arc is really aimed at, there has to be a depolarization component. I think that it that it will collapse into the new right wing movement. You know, mm-hmm. another way that it was described is it was it was like right wing Davos. Yeah. Um, the IMF. And I don't think that that's ultimately. Yeah, I don't think that's ultimately what. That's not its highest potential, and it would be bad if it settles into that. But I was at Arc, and the most powerful moments for me were when I. Hersey Ali just declared herself a Christian, Jonathan Pajot's talk, and then the poetry of Joshua Luke Smith, who's coming from a Christian perspective. Yeah, shout out Joshua. And the worst moments for me were the Christian pastors. Hmm. So there's an interesting tension, right? There's there there's the assertion within Tom Holland yeah. and Douglas Murray and Jordan Peterson of a civilizational Christianity. And a way of, of of looking at that that can be congruent with a scientific worldview, mm-hmm. and then there is a an uneasy alliance with the traditional Christian Christianity of the right, which actually isn't congruent with the scientific worldview. And then I think in Paul Vanderclay and Jonathan Pajot, perhaps your work, and John Verveke, who you know. He's not, this is not his project, but he does a lot of good work for it. Um, there is, there is maybe something that creates a tent that both can live within. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah, I've got no interest in that. I think the best word for it is Christendom. I I'm I'm part of me. I don't want to talk about the arc that much, but I have my concerns about a similar thing that I see with you just described it perfectly with those that are like wanting a return to the Nordic pagan religions. And it's, I see it as a concern about the disintegration of the West. We're going to lose our place of power. We're going to lose our prominence. We're going to lose, lose, lose this. What yeah. is the thing that's going to ensure our victory and survival? And for some it's Odin for others, it's Christendom. I got, I want nothing to do with that. I'm like, I'm a Kierkegaardian Christian. I, 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 I uh, I'm a low church Christian. I mean, there's, there's probably some of the tensions that I might experience with the, the central question and whether or not, uh, you know, for my Orthodox brothers and sisters, whether or not Constantine is a saint or not, you know, I, <laughs> I struggle, yeah. I struggle with that with Constantine being a saint and Justinian being a saint when you know what happened. And, uh, so the, I, the idea that we're going to use this as a means to protect, I love Western Civ. I mean, given the civs, I'll take Western Civ, but I'm, I'm not in allegiance to that. And I don't think you can be to be consistent for me with what I'd say is. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's always funny for me to say things like this because, you know, I don't go to church and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have faith that the resurrection happened yeah. or that, that Jesus was born of a virgin mother yeah. or any of that. Yeah. Right. Uh, and yet, when people say the West, I wonder what the hell that means. <laughs> yeah, right? right. I think, are you really just saying Christendom? Is that right. actually what you're saying? Yes. And 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 if and if that is actually what we're saying, um, is it a process of going back? or deeply understanding what made the West virtuous and being able to step forward into a new world where that virtue can grow. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that I think is the better impulse. Yes. And we have to have, I mean, even, even from a psychological perspective, Rafe, like we have to, in order for progress, like authentic progress to happen in order for us to learn, to grow, there has to be a standard beyond where we are at. There has to be the transcendent, you know? So Peterson always is talking, you know, this is where Peterson's great. You know, the, the, the yeah. dance between order and chaos and that, uh, states, psychological states of being, which are overly ordered, we would call like obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, yeah. prone to anxiety, you know, there are these disorders that come from overly ordered states. And what you have to be able to do is to be able to go out into the unmapped territory, to go out into the chaotic. And you have to, this is where the exploration happens. And so yeah. that also maps on to what I say is like, this is the historic way of Jesus is to recognize that there's always, even though Christ is here with us imminently, we have his spirit. We also recognize the trans ultimate transcendence of God. So there's always something above and beyond where we're at. And to me, like the best thing I want to call people in my community to into whatever we want to call our neighbors and our country to is not to like this allegiance where we syncretically continue to syncretically mix this, this American story and manifest destiny and all of that stuff with Christendom, 
you know, and we baptize people into that. And then we say, what we have to do is protect and preserve that past image at all costs. To me, and this is, this is Kierkegaard's critique of the Danish state church, that's idolatry. Like you're making an idol out of the past. And what Christ calls us to is this like, this wouldn't be Kierkegaard's language, but this, this is more Peterson language, like a perpetual engagement with the transcendent. And that's actually what produces in us metanoia, which is, of course, the Greek word for repentance, a new way of seeing, a new way of thinking. And I think what we have to do is to continue to have, I mean, I think Jonathan mentioned this in his talk, you have to continue to have this good that is always transcendent. It's like an the unending font of truth, beauty, yeah. and, and, and yeah. goodness that, that we are ever reaching to. Now, of course, the difficulty comes about when we have competing notions of what the good is. You know, I mean, Augustine, this is classic Augustinian theology, and it's it's Platonic too <laughs> as well. Can't really neatly separate the two sometimes. But the idea is like sin is not a pursuit of that which we think is evil. Nobody pursues, I mean, there there are some probably instances where people are actively going after what they, they think is evil. But by and large part, it's people pursuing what they think is a good, which is not in fact a good. So a marital affair for me would be, you know, it's a sin, you know, it misses the mark. It's harmartia. It misses the mark because it goes against God's intended order for these relationships to function. But my temptation towards an affair or some persons, I won't personalize this, some person's temptation towards a marital affair is them pursuing what they think is a good for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, well, it, it, it is a good, it is a good, right? You, you, you're called towards a potential affair by beauty. Yeah. Right. By a truth of a potential connection, mm -hmm. by the local good of the pleasure and beauty and, and connection that can happen between you and that person. It, it, I don't think that the affair, I think you can be attracted to an affair for evil reasons too. Right. I, I, I um, but let's come back to that in, in a mm -hmm. moment. Um, you can be attracted into an affair by the mistaking of the local good for the meta good. Yeah. Right. Because it can be good for you right now. Mm -hmm. It can be good for the other person right mm -hmm. now. And you can think in some way that, Oh, if I can just contain this in this local moment, then it doesn't have a cost to anybody else. So why not? Why not access this good? But the truth is that, that it always ripples mm -hmm. into the interaction with your, your spouse and with your children. And so you can serve the local good in a way that is a deep disservice and a much more profound disservice to the, the, the higher good mm -hmm. that's contained within your marriage mm -hmm. and the contained within your relationship to your children. Um, even like ending a marriage, right? That can happen for good reasons, right? Or, you you know, people have grown apart. And maybe it has to happen. Maybe that local good is the highest good that, that those two people can achieve. But the highest good for me is when they can overcome yes. and, and come to coordination and come to coherence together so that they can exemplify that for their entire community. Mm -hmm. And so they can be 
you know, like I look at my, my relationship with my wife, we've been together for 20 years, right? So we've evolved our differences over the years. We have traumatized each other and, you know, put buttons all over each other that it's easy for us to push and be like, oh man, like, let's just start fresh. Like we're way more mature. We're better people. Now we'll find a new partner. It'll be a, a better thing. Mm -hmm. But how could I ever share with any other woman what I could potentially share with the woman who I've spent 20 years with and who's born three of my children and who I've raised children with together. Like, like to me, there's only one pathway towards the highest good and expression of, of my potential for connection with another woman. And that's within my marriage. Um, now, Maybe something goes wrong. Maybe I, I feel treated poorly and, and I, I want to hurt her. And that's a reason that someone might might choose to do an affair. And that actually is not an attraction to the good. Mm -hmm. Like <clears throat> um, Peterson talks about this. And I think this is, you know, Peterson makes the claim that Christianity has the, the best sort of theory of evil. And the, th the theory of evil that Peterson ascribes to Christianity or describes in relationship to Christianity is the idea that suffering can, can incline us towards believing that being itself is corrupted and aiming ourselves against being and living within resentment. And this is actually an evil. Um, and this is different than mistaking a local good for the higher good. And I think a whole lot of the evil in the world is the local good being mistaken for the higher good. But some of it is actually the choice to cause more suffering in the world. Um, and I don't actually think there's a, for me, you know, obviously you get into semantics here, but I don't actually think that that, that desire to cause suffering from resentment can be perceived as an attraction to a beauty or a truth or a good. Hmm. So that's my perspective on it. Yeah. Okay. You said a couple of things there, Rafe, that I think have salient points of connection. I want to explore because I do want to circle back specifically to you, the work that you do and talk about this because yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm shocked, Rafe. Uh, and I, I mean this in the best way possible. I, I hope you don't take any personal offense to it. When I talk with you and I talk with John Verveke, I, I find myself, this is, this is a compliment. I find myself frustrated because I actually, now we're just speaking through a digital connection. We don't really know each other on a, on a deep level. But the resonance that I get when I hear you speak and I talk with John, it, it resembles a Christ-likeness that frustrates me because simultaneously, you are also someone that's like, I don't, I'm not currently going to church. And so yeah. part of me goes, what am I doing? You know, like my job here, you know, my, my day job here is I'm a pastor and we very much most of my, most of my specific duties in our church context has to do with Sunday morning and the life of worship when the community gathers together in worship. I'm not saying that to invite you to church, Rafe. What I am saying is I, I'm really fascinated by actually what I see is missing ingredients, things that are missing in the life of the average churchgoer that are not producing 
the same kind of effects that I'm actually seeing. Again, we have very low resolution pictures of each other right now, but even in the low res resolution picture I'm getting of you, Rafe, and uh, and for John, without these like historically orthodox commitments, I see you guys traveling on the way in a way that actually would provoke me to jealousy, which is, is probably a weird thing for you to hear and to grapple with. So my thing that I'm, I'm reflecting on is like, okay, so what sorts of practices is Rafe engaged with that I would say, and you don't have to agree with me on this. This would be like my theological interpretation of this Rafe is like, you know, I, I, I see, I see whatever all light to me, all light and this isn't just me, this is Justin Martyr, this is historic Orthodox Christianity that gets lost in evangelical context. All light is the light of Christ. There is no light. He is the light that, the light to all mankind, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and Him was the light, and that light was the light of all mankind. So whenever people encounter that, the, um, the, he the Hebrews 11 has this list of the heroes of faith, and it lists these people like Abraham, you know, the patriarchs, but it also yeah. lists this very interesting character, um, Rahab, the harlot. Rahab was the Canaanite harlot who let the Israelite spies into her home and gave them protection and gave them comfort. And she actually was saved in that day of judgment when judgment came to her town. Her and her family were preserved and protected. And the interesting thing about her is we have no record of her giving any sort of like doctrinal affirmation to the Israelites God. But what she did do is she responded in that moment in a way, and, and Jewish readers would get this right away. They would look at her and go, oh, she's responding in a way that's in keeping with the Torah. She's providing hospitality to strangers. So yeah. she is responding positively to the light that that's been given. I see like what you're doing, Rafe, as like there has there's some positive response here going on in your life to the light that you've received. And it's producing in you these things that, again, from a Christian perspective, I would label as the fruits of the spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the meekness, the gentleness, the self-control. And I'm going, how are guys like you and John participating in the kinds of practices that are producing this in your life in a way that I go, my, our churches need this. Like the people that are giving those, you know, we say the apostles creed pretty regularly. The people that say the apostles creed, they should have this same sort of light and life and love flowing out of them that I experience when I talk to guys like you and John. I hope you don't feel totally uncomfortable by me saying that about you, but it leads me to the question of the processes, the practices, what is going on in your life that you're like, I, I do feel like I'm responding positively to the light and we could get all bent out of shape on like disagreements on Orthodox Christian yeah, doctrine. You know, but yeah. I see this yeah. as like the way, right? The way mm -hmm. produces a change of character. It's much more like virtue ethics than it is like, um, you know, than it is like, uh, like principled, rigid, you know, ethics. You know, we're, we're actually following a moral exemplar. We're following a moral exemplar. And when you follow a moral exemplar and you do the disciplines of the moral exemplar, you get the moral exemplar's virtue. 
I mean, that's Aristotle, yeah, but I actually yeah. think it's also the Apostle Paul. Anyways, yeah, I'll let you talk because I'm really fascinated by how is this happening, Rafe? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I, I just want to say that like hearing that from you um, touches me. You know, I just feel a little tenderness around my heart and kind of like watering in my eyes. So, you know, I take it as a, I do take it as a compliment and it's meaningful, you know, uh, it is a, you know, we, we, we all struggle and, you know, I hope that, um, that I'm struggling in the right direction and that I am showing up in that way for the people I love and in my life. Um, and I don't like, I guess I'm somewhere between Peugeot and Verveke, right? Uh, because I, I believe that, that we do actually, in some sense, have to inhabit a story. And I don't know how we inhabit a story and also uh, live within rigorous scientific epistemology. I don't know how those two things are balanced. I'm committed to both, and I don't know how we we find those balances. Um, John, I think while he deeply appreciates the positive lessons of Christianity, he's been really hurt by it. And he, um, and he sees the future in, um, in the, in a dialogical and philosophical approach to spirituality that doesn't necessarily have the commitments of Christianity. Um, I don't know if that's going to work for most people. For myself, I find that, uh, that I do attribute transformations in myself to Christianity. I do attribute the base in many ways of my ethical system to Christianity. Right? Like part of reading Tom Holland was this sense of, um, I'm kind of a Christian, whether I choose to or not. Like I, I sort of like, you're kind of stuck with choosing to be a Christian or reactionary against Christian. I don't actually think that, I could be a Buddhist, right? Yeah. Like I could, I could practice Buddhism. Uh, I could learn from Buddhism. I could take on the narrative and the story of Buddhism, but um, there's a kind of cultural grammar that's so deep that I don't think I could ever participate in Buddhism in the way that someone who's raised in a Buddhist culture can. And I think, and I don't know this for sure, but I think that, that there's something about the Christian grammar of our society that's very deep within me and within everybody. Um, and I think that, uh, that, that, um, that I, in my own life have taken on Christian people and their behavior as aspirational. <laughs> their beliefs have not always been coherent to me, but I did not see men who, acted out being a husband and father that I would want to be like in the counterculture community that I grew up with. And it was within the Christians whose politics I disdained and whose metaphysical beliefs I could not, uh, uh, could not commit to that. I saw exemplars of how I wanted to act. And, um, and I failed to act that way sufficiently. Um, at times in my marriage, because, because I had this countervailing sort of secular scientific economic, economic worldview that didn't place love at the highest. And I have been attracted to the story of Christianity 
right? The story of Christianity um, moves me, right? There's a, there's a, do you know the song Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen? Yeah. There's a version of that that was Christianified, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've heard about this baby boy who came to earth to bring us joy, right? Um, instead of, I heard there was a secret chord. So the original version of that I find deeply offensive, right? It's another one of these like super polished, hyper pop Christian pop songs that has, feels like it has no heart. There's a version of it by this little, uh, by a Irish kids choir of kids with learning disabilities. Hmm. There's this little autistic girl, Kaylee Rogers, who sings it. Wow. Um, and I cannot listen to that song without crying. Hmm. Right. My sins would drive that the nails in you, that rugged cross was my cross true. But every breath we drew was hallelujah. There's something about the story, which I do feel like for, for me personally is the exemplar of the way. Now, how I've come to that is a really weird journey, <laughs> and but it's not a journey that's as unique to me as it might seem. Like a lot of people have come into parkour and found themselves seeking spiritual truth and ended up relating to Christianity in some way. What do you is it is it the contact with nature, the movement, the obviously the combination? Like what if you're to try to parse out the ingredients and you go like, what's going on here? I'm not sure, right? There's the, the, the answer that occurs to me right now in this moment is that if you, if you come to parkour at the right time in your life, you'll find that it has transformative power. It won't have it for everyone. It's really most powerful for a lot of times it's going to be most powerful for young men. Hmm. But I think young men yearn for courage, right? We know that to be the best of what we can be, that courage is incredibly important for us. And so when we take on a practice like parkour, it, it embodies a virtue within us. And we learn that that virtue um, is actually what we were seeking in some sense. Mm. And if we can see beyond that, we, a, lot of, a lot of people, a lot of young guys who come into parkour, they reach their late 20s. And they realize that they're not continuing to experience the same type of profound transformation from parkour. And they, they're alienated and they lose their connection to parkour. Because it's an incomplete set of virtues. And I think that it's that that sets people out on the spiritual quest. It's when they hit the end of it and say, okay, well, I'm, I'm courageous, but I'm not wise. And I'm not sufficiently loving. And I'm not, you know, I'm not all these things that I could be. Uh, and just like I needed to transform myself in some sense to, to have this access to courage, I still need all these other things to become the human being that I would really aspire to be. And that's, I think, where a lot of people end up finding Christianity as well as other New Age spirituality, Buddhism, etc. Um, but that is what happened for me. And I found Jordan Peterson, right? <laughs> and I found John Verveke. And I found uh, deep research into play and connection to the natural world. And I found this, this whole set of things that I felt like could transform, that can transform me and can transform other people because they bring me into 
deeper connection to reality. I, I believe that the fundamental purpose of our practices is actually to fall more deeply in love with the world. And, and so in that sense, I actually think that a practice can help us step into this way that you're talking about, because this is what Christ asks of us. He says, um, you know, love, love thy neighbor, love that even thine enemy. Mm -hmm. And for me, I don't know if this is in Christ, but I would extend that. I would say that it is our duty to love the world, mm -hmm. right? to love the natural world. Yeah. That's no, yeah. that's not a stretch there, Rafe. I mean, that's John three sixteen. Yeah. That's for God so loved the world. Okay. You know? It's in John. It's in John. It's in, it's in all the, it's yeah. in all the Celtic saints. It's yeah. in Francis of Assisi. Right. Um, but I think that my critique of the, of the, of the traditional Christian faith is that there's not practice. The, the, the type of practices that are currently available don't have the transformative power that they could and where they do have the transformative power that they could it's not sufficiently articulated and understood the corruption and danger that is potential within that. Mm -hmm. So I can go to the local Orthodox church and they sing, but the priest can't sing. <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's somehow not a live feeling, mm -hmm. right? Then I can go to a charismatic church and I can dance, right? <laughs> One of my favorite songs right now is Tyler Childers. Yeah. Right. You know, the song, yeah. uh, uh, what is it? Um, yes, I know what one you're talking about. Uh, give me that old time That's, screaming and shouting, yep. go up, tell it on the mountain, yep. faith too strong to be left out in way of the triune God mm -hmm. brother. I don't need the pills you take just to feel the spirit moving. I ain't slept in days all without the drugs you're using. Right. Like that's there. But, but as you know, somehow, when that kind of was reborn into Christianity in America, uh, it was reborn in a way that left a lot of room for corruption. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is something in the philosophical practices that come down from the Neoplatonists and the Stoics that is necessary. I think there's something that is in the physical practices that come down through the martial arts and that have evolved in parkour that is actually necessary for the cultivation of the kind of virtue that can carry forward the transformation that you're looking for. Hmm. That's really good. Um, I'm still fascinated. I, I, we'll have to have another convo, Rafe, um, maybe several more, because I, I want to pick at this some more, because there's a whole bunch of things about, um, you know, for example, like opponent processing, the necessity yeah. of that. And that yep. when you put yourself in positions where, um, whether it's in a combat sport or sport mm -hmm. that has, uh, is a contact sport and you are, you're learning how to navigate that space. You're dealing with the, the competition, uh, how that actually forms and shapes your character in a particular way to be able to navigate in the other domains that I think that's it, Rafe. I think the thing. And, and like Verveke talks about this and why he hates video games, you know, Verveke hates yeah, video games because he feels like the skill sets that you get in that domain do not transfer nicely over into multiple other domains of life. And so what I'm interested in getting at, and I think I've noticed this in 
as, especially with men, I, I don't want to limit to that. I know you, you, you get women that, that are coming to your events and gatherings too. And, um, but especially with men who feel like it's really hard to come to church because they frankly just, it doesn't transform them in the same way that going to the gym does. There's mm-hmm. something there that I am like, we need to figure this out for anybody like me. That's uh, I, I feel a sense of commitment, at least at this point in my life for much of my life have been um, someone that sees myself more as I, I'm committed to try to work towards reform within the institutions right now, because I've been born and bred in them. And I'm thankful for that. And I feel a sense of, all right, let's, let's change and reform. So in order for that to happen, there's like, there's like opponent process. We're not opponents, but there's opponent process and going yeah. on right now where I'm going, there's something happening outside of these sorts of sets of practices, some of which are deeply transformative. That's why it keeps working for many people, but some of them don't have the cross domain applicability in the same way that, uh, athletics do or parkour or it's why so many so many men it's not just like the joe rogan phenomenon it's why so many men are all of a sudden taking jujitsu you know three nights a week and i've lamented my, my i was talking to my wife last night it's like huh you know what i would love if christianity had like a belt system like mis- mixed martial <laughs> arts <laughs> like in all seriousness like you need to have a yeah. way that you know like how am i progressing like i've been doing this for I'm, I turned 40 a couple days ago. I've been doing this for 40 years. Do, did well, I get to a black actually, belt yet, Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> the the higher, in some sense, the higher order transformations we're looking for, the harder they are to quantify. Yeah, for sure. And that's a problem. Yeah. Because if we only start at the high level, then we don't, then it's very easy to lie to ourselves. For sure. Whereas when we start with parkour, um, you, you jumped or you hit the jump or you didn't hit the jump. Mm-hmm right? You, you, you can do it or you can't. And if you try, you're going to hurt yourself. Mm -hmm. And that to me is actually like a fundamental physical grounding and epistemology, Mm -hmm. right? You, you have to respect truth. Um, and, and I think there's a way that we scale up from that. Uh, so yeah, I'm curious to, to talk more. There's something I wanted to say, but I, I, th- I think I've forgotten it. I actually have to go. Yeah. I have another call yeah. right now, but uh, it was really good chatting. And um, Yeah, thank you, Rafer. I appreciate it. We'll make sure in the link below uh, to this video, or if you're listening to the audio-only podcast, in the description of the show notes, you'll find a link to uh, Rafe's website and uh, s- some plenty of interesting conversations Rafe's had out there on YouTube with other guests as well that touch on all sorts of facets. I, I feel like we, I'd like to talk more about the particulars of the practices that you're doing. I feel like we haven't even got <laughs> yeah. to that. People yeah, like, we got so, so high order that yeah, we got oh. like people that are going like, what, what did this, what's this guy actually do again? <laughs> <You know? laughs> He's really smart. I like him, <laughs> but thank you, Rafe. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Yep. Have a good day. You too. Take Bye-bye. care. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading your comments and questions after that episode. And there are several ways you can reach out to me and do that. First of which is to become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community to become a patron. You can message me, you could participate in the discussion forum, or you could participate in our Discord server, which you get access to as someone that is connected to the Patreon community. 
Once again, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, we are shy of our goal of 200 patrons. 200 patrons, uh, we've got thousands of listeners on the audio-only podcast. We've got 5,500 or so subscribers on YouTube. And among those, the ideal situation is that we get a few hundred supporters that are able to financially contribute to keep this work going and to allow me to continue to sink my time and energy and resources into the podcast so that I could continue to give it away for free to those who might not be in the position where they could, you know, even give a few bucks a month. That's very much a reality for a lot of people, and I understand that. And so uh, if you're in a position where you could support at uh, $2, $7, $15, or become a personal supporter at $75 a month, that would uh, that would certainly help, help this continue to be something I can continue to do and to continue to give away for free. It's because of the generous support of people like Clint, Brandon, Brent, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, Jesse P., John Mark, Josie, J. Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P., Sarah R., Stephen H., and Tim B. that this podcast is possible. Thank you all for your generous support. I really, this is not just a cliche that I tag on at the end of the episodes. I really, from my heart, mean this. I can't do this without your support. So thank you all for your generosity. Uh, I really am looking forward to hearing your comments and feedback on this episode. So please do reach out to me. This makes this whole process way more enjoyable. And you know, you never know, maybe one of your questions gets turned into a bonus Q&A episode. So please consider reaching out. I love getting all the feedback. Even if you have points of disagreement, feel free to share those too as well. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.